0: What's good, fam? It's your man, Norm, here. Are you following us on social media yet? If not, you may find us on all of the major social platforms such as Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and even LinkedIn. Find us at newNuma. That's P-N-E-U, P-N-E-U-M-A. From there, you may find myself and Justin and follow our personal accounts also. As you know, feedback helps everyone grow and we need your feedback. If you wanna join our team, have suggestions on how we may improve if you want to be interviewed by us or if you have someone you would like for us to interview please email us at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com And last but not least, if you would like to see our podcast grow to that next level, you may also give financially to the cause whenever you feel like it by going to our anchor.fm page, clicking on the button that says support this podcast. We will greatly appreciate you sewing into the vision to help us spread the good news about the truth of God's kingdom worldwide. Thanks for your support and keep it locked right here. Okay, here we go. Scott Garber, how you doing today?
1: Doing well. Good, good to do it.
0: <laughs> it's good to have you on the show finally, after so many years of waiting around, trying to, uh, you know, I've. It's one of those things where, like I said earlier, I've I've desired to do this for years, but it's like the timing, I guess, just wasn't there. And I've been kind of recently, I've been appreciating the fact of the timing of the Lord. Like, when things happen, that's when it's supposed to happen, you know? And it just so happens that um, you're about to come out with an amazing book that um, I know that you might not want to give that away too much right now. But I'm just saying, it's like the timing of that based on what I like to do with this show. One of the things that I'm doing with the podcast, we are dealing with racial reconciliation, Mm -hmm. Um, also we're dealing with other hard topics and issues that sometimes mm-hmm. the church either ignores, pushes to the side, or they kind of halfway talk about it for whatever reason. So, uh, I'm glad to have you on here. So before I'm happy
1: we to talk about the book, it's one of those okay. things you have to say more than once anyway. Oh so, yeah. Okay.
0: okay, good. Okay. Well, that's good. So, um, before we even get into that, um, in like, I guess in a couple of sentences, Um, Just to kind of introduce yourself, you know, I know that you have several degrees. I know that you traveled around the world. I know that you speak several different languages. But in about, you know, a couple sentences or whatever, kind of just give us a little synopsis of who you are.
1: Well, um, I am a Christ follower, first and foremost. Yeah uh happily married for almost 43 years now wow nice (laughs) uh, kind of a great blessing to have my daughter and her family living nearby too so that's that's wonderful um i if i were to classify myself i guess i'd say uh, i'm a theologian Mm -hmm. i've been a missionary i'm currently a writer i've also been a pastor Mm -hmm. and um just try to take the opportunities to do something creative for God, whatever he brings those opportunities along. So, Yeah, that was, well, that, that sounds good.
0: Today. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, I'm going to just give a little background on us, how we met. Um, so we met at Bridgeway Community Church. And um, the thing is, is that I remember when I first met you. Now, I, it's somewhat fuzzy on exactly why I wanted to meet you. But I believe that it was because I heard you minister and then I heard about some of the things you had already done. And so I was like, wow, I, I definitely would like to intro- you know introduce myself to him and see what he's all about and even get him on the show. But then, however things happened, it fell through the cracks. And then I, you know, I was I, I remember on Twitter saying stuff to you. I would tweet something out real quick and say, hey, I want to do that interview or whatever. And then I kind of just, you know, it just went by the wayside. But here we go. Uh, years later, I your name came up in my spirit. and um, And actually, that was a year ago. <laughs> that was a year ago. And I reached out to you. And then I was like really surprised when you sent me the book that you sent me. And I was like, wow. This is like, this is something, this is right up my alley right here. And I didn't even realize that you were all about, you know, things like what you were talking about in the book. So anyway, having said all that, it's like, now here's a year later, there was a whole lot of stuff that was going on for me. I know there was a lot going on for you. And, you know, here we go. Coming back again, you know, to this topic of bringing you on the show and, uh, this is a reboot of the whole thing. Like I was telling you earlier. So anyway, within this, um, I, you know, we get so,
1: anxious about this timing thing. Don't exactly. We? We're like, oh, I'm late. You know, uh-huh. we're not going to get this done. But you know, I, my experience has been probably yours too, that, um, when you're walking in God's light, mm-hmm. he's, he, he's shining that light out ahead of you. Exactly. And he, he gets that stuff all worked out. And then, Finally, everything just dovetails and you go, oh, why was I worried about that?
0: <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. So, you know, I'm going to just say that, um, you know, for the for the, the way that I normally uh, do on my show, I like to ask people about their background, but specifically starting from their childhood, how they were raised up and stuff like that. So tell us about um, how life was for you growing up. Where are you from? Stuff like that.
1: Okay I I was born uh in Dayton Ohio grew up okay. outside the city um and uh, I had a I had a wonderful family um and a uh, Christian family my parents were very dedicated to God and to his work and they brought me up with those values um mm-hmm. what what I did not have which is kind of surprising uh, when you consider what I've come around to now is I I was like living out beyond the burbs, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody <laughs> around us had like two or three acres uh-huh. of land. And my yeah. parents bought bought land from my great grandparents' farm and built a house on it. Wow! So and so living out away from the city, there there, there were no racial issues in my upbringing.
0: Yeah. uh-huh. Um, I, I mean, you were, you were isolated pretty really, much. I, I, I don't think I met a black person yeah. I was like twelve years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> to be honest, I'm, yeah. And
1: there, there were, there were no African Americans uh-huh. in my school district. Wow. At all. Yeah. As far as I know. Yeah. I certainly not in the school, that, school or schools that I attended. Mm-hmm. Um and um, yeah. So God had some surprises in store, I'm sure. but that was that was the way it began. Uh, just. Uh, opportunities to serve God in church and to, uh, you know, to it was a pretty happy childhood, but one that was a little bit sheltered.
0: Yeah. So being that you had this sheltered childhood and everything, how in the world did you come to the place of, I know that uh, you came to this decision to go and get your degree in theology and stuff like that. So was that something that you did straight out of high school and you went straight to college for that?
1: Well, yeah. So straight out of high school, I went to a Bible Institute and then I transferred into a Christian liberal arts college and also studied Bible there. And then I went to a seminary after I got done with those experiences. Um, So that was, that was the trajectory of it.
0: Okay. So how, how did you like, so it sounds like at an early age, you had the call of God, you felt the call of God in your heart to do ministry. How young were you when you had the call of God come to you?
1: Well, it's a good question because I think it kind of dawned on me over time in a Mm -hmm. certain sense. But I can say now that from the time I was 12 years of age or so going forward, I didn't really consider, seriously consider doing anything else but, but dedicating myself to ministry of some sort.
0: Okay. Well that's interesting, Scott. So you went to this these several different colleges and everything, and then you finally get your theology degree, right? So what caused you to after okay, well let me no let me back up a little bit. So when did you first encounter like a real life in your face, African-American. <laughs>
1: well, I um, so I, I was going to a public school and as I mentioned, I didn't have that experience in my school district, mm-hmm. but when I was in the eighth grade, my parents sent me to a private Christian school, which was in downtown Dayton. And okay. there, there was some racial mix. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had a, a couple of black friends there. Mm-hmm. Um, that were relatively close friends that we mm-hmm. did stuff together. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my introduction to it. When I went away from there to, um, to Bible Institute, my best friend there was from Kenya. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just began to get this fascination with other cultures, cultures other than my own. Yeah. Um, and then when I went on to seminary, there were the seminary was like, okay, 550 people. I think there were three Black men there, yeah, and somehow I got to know these three guys Mm -hmm. and started hanging out with them and hearing their stories. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of an education for me to hear how they had they had not grown up most of them in in really church Christian kinds of environments, and they Mm -hmm. had all come to Christ um, under the influence of a chaplain in the military. Oh wow! And that chaplain had graduated from the seminary that we were all at, and so that's how. We all oh, came okay. together. So, you know, I was hearing about their uh, their experiences coming up, and, and um, that was kind of an introduction for me of, of sorts.
0: Okay. So I know that at some point, um, I guess it was after the theological seminary, that's when you started to go to a church in the African-American uh yeah, well,
1: we—I started doing that, but even before that, we moved back to Dayton, Ohio. This is in 1981 mm-hmm. when nobody basically was doing multicultural ministry, especially okay. in the Midwest. Yeah, and this wasn't like the best thought-out plan ever. Okay, <laughs> so but um, so these guys that I'd known in seminary uh-huh. um, had through my contact with them, I developed this sort of vision that something could be done cross-culturally and I moved into what was essentially a black neighborhood and started mm-hmm. trying to start started a church. Yeah. Wow. So five, six months into this, we had some people who were coming to Christ and but you know, we didn't have any funding or anything yeah. anything clever like that. Yeah, you know? uh-huh. So but I, I became aware of how little I knew about the environment that I was working in and i said you know i i need a secondary education here <laughs> so we spent a, a while looking around and found a church where they were happy to have us and the pastor had a lot of patience it was a, it was a missionary baptist church mm-hmm. about 600 people i think i think we were the only white folks there mm-hmm. and you know we just went it was one of those churches where You go in at like 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, and you get out like Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) So literally, it was Sunday school, and then there was church, Uh and then we went out to eat, and then there was an afternoon service, Uh and after the afternoon service, there was training union at 5.30, and then there was the evening service, and then I went out every, every every Sunday evening with the pastor and the deacons okay. out to this place, and we sat there and ate fried chicken until they closed the place at, <laughs> at midnight, so that,
0: that was like the
2: whole
1: day, but you know I just, I just learned so much mm-hmm. from being in that environment yeah. and, and gained an appreciation for the African American church, mm-hmm. and really the, learned about the environment that I was in, and fortunately the people that I was with were nice, and they were patient with me, and mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that was kind of how that
0: Wow. So how long did that last while you were there? That was
1: about two and a half half years, I think, I was in that environment. And I I was doing a radio program at the time as well um, that was aimed into the African-American community by the station that it was on, Uh uh, doing Bible teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of out of the blue, a guy from my parents' church, I knew him, but he was more friends of my parents' than he was of, of, of ours. He came to me and said, um, he said, I've been praying for you and your wife every day since you got married, that you would go to the foreign mission field. He said, I think you're spinning your wheels here. and You ought to think about this. So this was something that we had been open to like years before, but hadn't given any recent consideration to. Um, But, you know, it's hard to find somebody who'll pray for you seven days. He said he'd been praying for us every day. This has been seven years. Wow. and he never mentioned it. Mm. So when somebody comes to you after with yeah. those credentials, I mean, you, you at least think, okay, maybe God is trying to deliver a message here. And uh, we started looking into it, and that at first, at first, I was discouraged about that because every mission organization I talked to, they wanted to send me to the other side of the world mm. to start a church. I said, I tried to start a church here. Church here, I don't really think that's what I'm cut out to do. But then the the idea came up and the opportunity to go and to do training of pastors and Christian workers in other places, mm. and that teaching ministry opportunity uh, I found attractive, and so we spent a couple of years raising funds and and went and spent twelve years. Then in after the couple of years raising funds, we spent twelve years in Europe, eight wow. and a half of which were in Spain and three and a half in mm. Romania.
0: Wow. Okay so did you learn those languages as well I did I, I
1: learned them, yeah I learned them after I got there fortunately Romanian is also a Romance language so if you know Spanish really well oh, wow. it helps okay. a lot with, with that Okay. Um, yeah because the teaching had to be done in the, the languages yeah. yeah
0: wow you're pretty good with languages then
1: well the, the Romanian is pretty rusty now the Spanish I've
0: kept up with <laughs> uh, yeah. so um, now I did kind of I guess skip over something I want to know how you and your wife met.
1: Okay, well, that happened on the first day we were in college together. As I said, I'd gone to a Bible Institute and I saw I was transferring into this mm. college. And um, she had some credits that she'd gotten from some tests she'd taken before she went there. So technically, we were both transfer students and they'd messed up our records. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we ended up in the same office to get this stuff straightened out. Oh, and they, had, wow. and they had to create a special class for us, because of a required <laughs> course that we were supposed to take, that was full by the time it was. They didn't have any more room in it by the time they got, they got around to dealing with wow. us. So, and it met at noon, which meant we had to do, have a special lunch time as well. Okay. So the people in this class got to know each other and then started eating lunch together, wow. and that's kind of how we were introduced. That is so it happened so on the very first day we got there.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, at what point did you? I guess feel like this is a woman you wanted to marry.
1: Well, that's kind of a strange story too, because uh, she didn't want to date me at first. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't know about dating each other. Well, we were both 18. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but we got this brilliant idea that we would go to her parents' house in Florida (laughs) uh if we 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 could cut like a whole week of classes and take all all of the cuts that we had for the whole term and go to Florida for a week in the middle of the winter was just a great idea so we drove down there and the first night that we were at her house um I met her father when he came home from work and we sat down at the table and he asked me if um if I was thinking about getting married before I finished college and we never talked about getting married, so I didn't think he was talking about us. He's just asking me about my general plans, yeah. you know, and so I, I thought, well, no, I don't think I'll, that'll happen because uh, I was going to graduate right after I turned 20. Yeah. yeah like, uh, <laughs> so then I told him that I was thinking about going to seminary and he said, well, uh, you think you might get married before you before you uh, finish seminary? I thought, well, that would be kind of logical. I said, yeah. He said, well, I just want you to know it's okay with us. <laughs> you know, my, my future wife was kicking her, her father, or mother, somebody at the table because we were looking at each other like we've never talked about this. Uh-huh. So, that was wow. That, but I, that was when we first began talking about it. But it was probably it was some months later before I realized, okay, you know, when I graduate, then I'm going off to seminary, and if we're not going to get married, then she's not going to come with me. So that kind of forced the question, Mm -hmm. and we got very younger than we otherwise would have because of that, I suppose. Wow. Yeah.
0: So um, was there ever any kind of, um, I guess, let me put it this way. Not everybody has the pleasure of being married to someone that they typically are in agreement with about making major moves. (laughs) You were talking about going to another country, not another state, not even another street. Yeah, you were saying we're going to go across the seas to go do something, and then she's down with that. So, <laughs> was it always like some understanding of uh, you just she's going to go wherever you're going, like whatever you feel to do, she's going to be down with that?
1: Well, I don't know if it began that way. The first, first item was she grew up in a military family and they moved every two years so she thought that when she married me there'd be a lot more stability we wouldn't be moving around that much so we've moved 21 times and we've been in this house for 15 years so that tells you there was a lot of moving around before that Mm. but uh, she wouldn't even date me unless she knew that i would consider being a missionary wow so she had this in her mind she was actually more oriented in that direction than than i was initially we were both open to it, but I mean, so that was kind of always out there. Mm. So bringing up the idea of going overseas wasn't a big deal to her. She was, you know, very happy to mm. uh, to have that conversation. Yeah. Um, but you know, we moved we moved to start this church without any means of support or anything else. So she was very open to whatever God's leading was. Um, but I think it, it took a few years before she actually trusted my judgment enough to say, like, you know, if you think that's a good idea, then I'm probably really for it too. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. But the missionary thing—that was not a big ask. Because okay.
0: Yeah, I can imagine yeah. now. So this is really interesting to me. There was something you said that um, I'm pretty sure this came up in another interview I had with someone where we were talking about racial things, and what I discovered, what I've And I've been feeling this way for years, but it's been coming up in more and more conversations where I'm starting to say, I have enough information to say, this is it. And what I'm talking about is exposure. If we look at a lot of the problems that exist between different cultures, and um, specifically, let's talk about America, because this is um, the place where I've been, you know, concentrated my efforts on as far as like trying to bring racial reconciliation um when you look at americans first of all americans in general tend to be closed off to other cultures they tend to think everybody needs to conform to them and they don't need to conform to anybody else and wherever they go like don't you know how to speak english you know you know they just expect everybody to accommodate them so with that being said when we look at A general uh, American way of dealing with another culture in America, then we see a similar thing where they're not willing to see what your culture is about. They want you to come to theirs or they want you to conform to what they do. And they're not willing to figure out what you do. So what I've been finding is that when people are not exposed to another culture, then they already have Um, cause a barrier to be there. But when there's an openness to learn about other cultures and there's an openness to get to know um, what they like to eat, what they like to do for fun, stuff like that, normal conversations that you would have with anybody that you want to get to know, then there's an opportunity for walls to be torn down. Because a lot of times what i found is that people who have some kind of a racial bias or whatever, they don't even know anything about those people. They think they know something, but they really don't. And a lot of their thoughts are coming from what they saw on TV or uh, some movie or something like that. So, <clears throat> with that being said, your exposure that you had in high school is what, or school in general, is what sparked your interest to be able to say, you know what? there's more to this world than my culture only and where I'm from. And I like what I learn about them and what they're talking about too. So, you know, maybe I should explore this a little bit more. And then it's like, there's a spark in you. So um when you, when you started to get to know your friends in high school and, you know, whatever grade you were in, um, like, what did that show you about, did it show you anything about your family? Did it make you think anything differently about your family or did you feel like uh, maybe they were the way they were because they hadn't been exposed to anything like that?
1: Yeah. It it did make me think that, that, you know, my, as I said, that my existence was pretty sheltered and that the people around me, you know, I was, I was making a step to get to know a different culture, but, but other people around me would like look at me and, okay, that's sort of weird, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's like you broke the huddle. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Went over fraternizing with the other team, between plays or
1: something, you know. Well, it just uh-huh. it wasn't done. I mean, um, and, you know, it, it almost seems like, you know, we are talking about God's timing earlier. It almost seems like the whole idea of going overseas would have been like a hiatus in all of this. But but really, it played, I think, an important role because, as you were saying, especially here in America, where we're not particularly interested sometimes in other people's cultures, that's particularly true of the majority white culture because if you're from the majority culture, you don't have to know how to navigate other cultures. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you're from a, a minority culture, you have to know something about yeah. the majority culture mm-hmm. in order to just get through life. Yeah. Well, when I went overseas, I found out like in two days, uh, Spain is not going to change because I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm going to be successful here, I'm the one that has to adapt. (laughs) And so, you know, it gave me the the opportunity to live as a cultural minority. Mm -hmm. I wasn't an oppressed minority. I'm not looking for sympathy here. I'm just saying that it gave me an opportunity to look at the world a bit differently because Mm -hmm. I couldn't assume that everything was just going to conform to the way that I was used to doing stuff, mm-hmm. which would have been the case for me yeah. if I just stayed here. Yeah. So then coming back, From that overseas experience, we once again reengaged and spent four plus years in another, in a CME church, Mm -hmm. which is a denomination not as many people are familiar with. Everybody knows AME. Yeah, I
0: was about to say, I (laughs) thought they changed their name or something. (laughs)
1: Everybody knows AME. Well, the CME, the AME church broke off of the Methodist Episcopal church Uh, Uh um, back even before the Civil War. Yeah. But the CME church was actually started by... um, by people after the civil war where the whites in the Methodist Episcopal church gave them some money and said, here, go off and do your own thing. They were kind of glad to get rid of them uh, at that point. Uh-huh. And so the CME church originally stood for colored Methodist Episcopal. Okay. Now they keep the same CME, but it stands for yeah, Christian Methodist Episcopal. Okay. So we yeah. spent four years there, me being an associate minister in this church and, and um, again, just learning and getting to know people and, and the other thing that that helped me with, I think, is, you know, it, it's not that often that white folks, like, immerse themselves in an African-American culture. And this was the second time that we, like, were the first white people on our block to yeah. buy a house yeah. in that block. And then immersing ourselves in the church um, uh, gave me the opportunity to learn to appreciate the black leadership and also to submit to the black leadership, Mm -hmm. which is not an experience that most white people have.
0: I know. So um, I'm definitely, you can keep on talking, but I want you to. Yeah. um, So that,
1: that, that was really helpful because, you know, in the end, you can't learn to, you can't learn to love people as yourself unless you respect them as yourself. And so having the experience of having to work under the authority of somebody else, I think helps in that, in that gaining of respect Mm -hmm. because you're put in a structural situation that doesn't give you the opportunity (laughs) to like elevate yourself over that other person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, and again, the people were super kind and, and helpful to us. And it was just a situation that the Lord used to teach me stuff.
0: So I want you to go into a little history. Okay. And the reason why is because just like we've already been discussing, And, you know, for the for the sake of listeners, um, there's a couple of things that I'm doing here intentionally, because I know that there are Caucasian people who are listening. They have no clue about a lot of stuff you're saying. This is education for them. This is an eye opening for them. This is something that they need, whether they realize it or not. And it's it takes someone like yourself who has dealt with this kind of thing already, who is going through a certain process, who has the kind of credentials that you have even, to be able to break it down for them and say, this is what it is, this is why you need to know this, this is why it's important, you know, things like that. So with that being said, I would like for you to touch on the history of, well, even before I say that, I'm gonna say this, um, there are, there are some Caucasians who I've met, who I've talked to about certain things, and they've questioned, why does something like a HBCU exist? Why does a BET exist? Why does this this net? And, and they talk about all these things that were supposedly, I guess you would say directed towards African American people. Mm-hmm. But they have no idea why that happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And now it's like they have this thing in their mind of why are they having a special thing that excludes other people, but if we did that, then blah, 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 you know? And I'm like, well, it was forced, and that's what you don't understand. Yeah. So I want you to touch on that as as it relates to even what we were just talking about with the colleges, but also about the AME, CME, all that kind of stuff. Talk about that history, please, a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, during slavery... There were what you might call integrated churches, hmm. in, in that the masters took the slaves with them to the church. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. but there was no there was no peer to peer fellowship yeah. because they were they were still That's slaves. Fair. It was still a mm-hmm. two tiered system. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the churches were a little bit better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in the Baptist churches, uh, the slaves were generally accepted as members. Uh, sometimes people were even there was even a recognition with someone that was particularly gifted as a speaker or a preacher. Um, Mm. And, um, and if they, if they moved, I say this between quotes, Mm -hmm. moved because they were sold to somebody else, that their membership would be transferred to another Baptist church where they went. If in fact, where they went, they were allowed to attend church. Mm -hmm. But that, but that was like that was the best possible scenario. It, yeah. Even then, it was it was two classes in the same yeah. uh, church because when um, when they passed the communion around, you know, all of all of the African Americans had to wait until all of the whites were served, and so there was a pecking mm-hmm. order yeah. all, all the way through, which kind of, I mean, it it it, it pretty much undermines the whole. Uh, egalitarian emphasis of of the Lord's Supper, where <laughs> we're exactly. all equal before the cross. Yeah. If, if, if you have to have somebody waiting on the other people, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. um, so basically, what happened then is because of the treatment that people received, and in some in some of the churches, the the slaves were were not even told about heaven. In some of the churches, they were mm. told that if they didn't steal their master's eggs, they they might get into the kitchen of heaven. Or that there mm. might they wow. had a separate area, but there might mm. be a peephole they could look through where they could see their master passing by. Wow.
2: Mm. <laughs>
1: well, mm. I mean, a few people bought into that that folklore, but most, in most cases, for slaves, the idea of heaven was this is where the scores were going to be settled. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> they weren't looking forward to looking through the peephole, yeah. <laughs> to see where the master was going. Mm. Uh, but, but in any case, um, And so there were a lot of catechisms that were done for slaves as well. But the catechisms weren't designed to make them better Christians. For the most part, they were just designed to make them better slaves. Yeah. You know, and they were told, well, instead of honor your father and mother, the commandment was changed to honor your master. So the the Bible was completely (laughs) twisted around in order to to use uh, the church as a means of, of social control, basically. Um, so you can imagine, as soon as uh, freedom came about, or the possibility of freedom after the emancipation, after the Civil War, the people who had been trapped in these churches—they I mean, they were out of there in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in in twenty years, most of these denominations lost like the vast majority of their of their black uh, membership because they went into African-American churches. And in some cases, they were kind of helped along to find a more appropriate home that was called by the whites, because the whites didn't really want them there either when they were free. Mm -hmm. So um, that led led to starting some of these various denominations and and the black church alternative. Of course, backing up from that, like the AME and whatever, that was started, I think, in 1789 in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So that happened because um some um some black worshipers were pulled up off their knees uh by by white church officials because they didn't want them in that place at that time and so they, they started their own alternative at that time but that would could only happen in the north during that time mm-hmm. and the vast majority of, of black worshipers were in the South because that's where everybody lived. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after slavery that you got the migration going North Mm -hmm. and, um, and and the explosion really of these African-American denominations, there were even, there were missionaries that came from like the AME Mm -hmm. after the war into the South to help start new congregations. And they went from like, um, I think in the South, they went from like, the AME went from 4,000, to three hundred thousand members in, in a yeah. couple of decades wow. because that's that's where everybody <laughs> gravitated to. So that then you you start getting other alternatives. They didn't have they didn't have a chance for education or ministerial education in the white um, institutions. So then you get these other African American alternative institutions popping up. Um, sure, it was separatist, but that was the only way that they could have any control over their own destiny.
0: Wow. This is um, very interesting um, in a in a few ways, but, you know, I don't know if you've encountered what I'm about to bring up, but um, I have come across uh, guys specifically who are very angry about Christianity and their whole thing is based on how in the world could these people be Christians saying that they're Christians, but they had us as slaves. Not only that, but how is it that I can serve the God that they claim to serve when I know that they kept our people enslaved? And so they call it a white man's religion, Mm -hmm. okay? A lot of them are saying that not based on actual research, but based on what happened in America. Mm -hmm. So have you ever encountered people like that?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you get in enough of these discussions, you, you get some people who just... Come right out and say it, but but that baggage is is buried down in a lot of other people's psyches, and they may not even know it, mm-hmm. but it's still affecting. And you know, we're part of a multicultural co- congregation, the two of us. Mm-hmm. But when people come to that environment, everybody's bringing all this history with them, you know, mm-hmm. and we're all impacted by it by it to varying degrees. But then we got to sort all that out, yeah. and it, it, I mean, all the <laughs> stuff that we went through, it makes the reconciliation process that much more complicated because, mm-hmm. you know, this is what we're bringing with us. Yeah, I found people that are that are bitter about it. I, you know, the only thing you can say is that, um, first of all, my own opinion about it would be that
2: uh, some of those people who claimed
1: that they were Christ followers, there, um, not only was that were they involved in practices that were unchristian, but the mentality that they needed to, uh, to make that work uh, and the attitudes that they had to people were so unloving that it would be hard to defend the idea that they were really true Christ yeah, followers. Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But there's a difference between is this a white man's faith? Mm-hmm. Is this a white man's religion? Because the religion is the cultural practice of it mm-hmm. in some ways, whereas the faith is the more ideological thing that was given by Christ mm-hmm. and deposited to the yeah. apostles. And, mm-hmm. of course, we twisted that yeah. throughout history. So, you know, you couldn't argue with the, with the idea that in some ways it was a white man's religion because the white people controlled the religious practice yeah. of it. And, and there was certainly a great deal of hypocrisy. Um, because, I mean, John, John says it, you know, how can you claim to love God that you haven't seen if you can't love your brother that you have seen? Yeah. And enslaving somebody is not really a very, <laughs> yeah, a very nice form of, of showing love. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, you know, I can't, God is the judge. I can't yeah. judge people. And there are things in, in my own life and in every Christian's life that are hypocritical as well. And somebody could probably look at us and say, How could you do that or think that and and be a Christ follower? Because it is hypocritical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So fortunately God's grace covers a lot, but but there's no there but there's no defending mm-hmm. the people in their religious practice because it was it was completely hypocritical. And you know, I've written a lot about people had they had their they had their theological defenses of slavery. And sometimes their their people are excused because we just consider them to be children of their time. Mm. And, of course, we're all children of our time. You know, probably when we get to heaven, we're all going to be embarrassed about some stupid prejudice that we had and we didn't even know we had it, Mm. Um, racial or otherwise, (laughs) because we didn't get beyond our, our own context or environment. But, you know, during those times, there were other voices. There was the voice of Scripture, the voice of the Holy Spirit. That there, were, there were other Christians who did not accept, like, the, the slave mm-hmm. mentality and the, and the theological defenses of it. And the, the people, the, the, the foreign nations that the U.S. looked up to at that time, England and France principally, Though they though they allowed slaves in their colonies, they did not allow slaves in their homeland. Mm-hmm. And but but the Europeans who came here from those countries
2: to America, we we did allow slavery
1: on our on our own homeland. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't we didn't even live up as as Americans of European descent, I'm saying we mm-hmm. didn't even live up to the the mentors that we had at that time. Mm -hmm. So they were actually children behind their time, even during that time. So, you know, that can help explain it, but it doesn't excuse it.
0: So this brings up a question that um, I don't get to ask many people this question specifically because I guess they're not aware enough of things for them to even answer it properly. But Um, so one of the questions that, um, and this comes up with a lot of African Americans that I've dealt with, and I'm specifically talking about males because the males are the ones that I hear this from. I don't hear it from women. I hear it from males and I have my thoughts on why it's the males specifically, but, um, a lot of them, they bring up the fact of what they know Jesus didn't look like. And I wanna know from your perspective, um, <clears throat> how important do you feel? Okay, let me. I'm trying to think how to word this because this is a kind of a little tricky. Okay, so how do you feel about the images that have been portrayed of Jesus in paintings, drawings, whatever? the majority of what we see on any stained glass that we can find in any American church like certain things to me are obviously
2: not um,
0: biblically sound mm-hmm. but yet they are propagated as this is it can you speak to that i want i want to hear your perspective on that And then I have a follow-up question of that.
1: Yeah, you know, the the, the the worst situation of the kind that you're describing is where the African-American congregation meets in a building that was purchased from a white congregation. So all of the images that you're talking about are actually in the African-American congreg- uh, <laughs>
0: building, and they can, don't want to get rid of them because it would yeah. be too expensive to replace
1: them, but they're, right, they're
0: staring at you. you yeah, know? exactly. So you know what I'm talking uh-huh. about.
1: Um so yeah, I mean that's obviously obviously it wasn't accurate ever to um to depict jesus as some blonde haired blue eyed sort of person or even dark haired um angle looking he mm. was of semitic descent yes uh so if you wanted to be accurate, i mean, nobody knows what it looked like, mm. but you can kind of guess within certain parameters <laughs> what it didn't look like. Okay? Uh, <laughs> i mean yeah. you know part of the part of the reason why those images have been popularized so much is because um the art religious art was controlled by by western europeans um who were, that was the cradle of christianity for such a long time and of course when you're divorced from many historical roots of of the practice of, of faith it's easy to re-envision people in the same cultural Mm -hmm. patterns that you're used to, because you, you know, the people who were doing that art, maybe many of them maybe had never even seen somebody that was a different color. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but the, the the artwork I think is symptom to me is symptomatic of something else. Mm -hmm. And that is, this is something that like in, in, in my book, I go back to the,
2: the, like 500 years in
1: the late in 1400s when the Portuguese first started going into what is now Angola and taking slaves out of there. Um,
2: and try to follow the white attitudes toward people
1: who were not like the Western Europeans. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is a constant, what I call a moral constant or an immoral constant Embedded, came to be embedded in white identity. Mm-hmm. And, and I call that racial haughtiness. And so haughtiness is a little bit different than pride.
2: Okay. It,
1: it's kind of a first cousin of pride. Uh, sometimes we can think of pride as like pride in your heritage, pride in your work. Pride mm-hmm. can even be thought of in certain contexts as something kind of positive. Mm-hmm. But haughtiness is never positive because haughtiness is requires some inferior foil it requires somebody that you're better than Mm
2: -hmm. in
1: order to be haughty in other words you're elevating yourself above someone or some group of people and so racial haughtiness obviously is elevating yourself above one or other races Mm -hmm. and to me that is the fundamental problem that has driven the racial dysfunction throughout our history Mm -hmm. and the artwork is symptomatic of that because it doesn't seem odd if if Jesus is like if you think that you're, you represent the best. best group and yeah. you want to honor Jesus, yeah. well then you're going to <laughs> include him in that group, right? But yeah. the problem is not fundamentally the artwork. The mm-hmm. problem is the attitude that's that's behind it, mm-hmm. and so that's why that was just perpetuated. And obviously, you know the the the. Black and brown people who were under the influence of of the European people of European descent um, generally did not have the wherewithal or the even the, the economic and artistic freedom to be out there creating lots of lots of religious art because this was paid for by churches and by rich people, and that didn't yeah. describe those folks yeah so. So that's how you get that kind of imbalance. It's 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 another aspect of the racial hierarchy that exists, but it's mm-hmm. all driven by this by this immoral attitude. That's that's you know, as I start to like pull the cov- pull the, the cover up on stuff, I find it everywhere mm-hmm. that the racial hotness that that drives our racial hierarchy and and our prejudices and uh, the the system of Disadvantage and disadvantage of social well-being that exists in this country, and it exists and it continues to exist because the people who are at the top think that ever i mean—feel that at least that they're satisfied that everybody's getting more or less what they deserve. Mm-hmm. But that only works if you think you're better. Yeah. <laughs> if you're getting the most and you think you're better, then what? And I—I I would even say maybe not now, not even so much think you're better, feel you're better. Mm-hmm. It's a sense mm-hmm. because not not that many white people dare to say, "Oh, I think I'm better." Yeah, that yeah. that's kind of bad form. But the but the fact is that we put up with a with a uh, with an unequal system, and the only way that that makes any sense is if somebody feels feels like that's okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I kind of got a, Got ahead on that question, but yeah, but I, the, to me the artwork thing goes back to to the symptom
0: of the, of this root cause. So that leads me into my next question. Because we know that when we read the Bible in Genesis, it says that God created man in his image and his likeness. Now, when we think about image, like, um, I can't remember who said this, but they said image is everything. I think, I don't know if it was Sprite or something. I don't remember. But they were like, image yeah. is everything. Okay. Now, Obviously, images are very key to how people see things. If we look in the modeling industry, for instance, there was an image that prevailed for decades. Now that image is being changed and there are other images being presented that are now being promoted as this is the image that we like or this is an image that represents what we do. Now, but specifically dealing with the modeling industry. I know that there was a specific female who was a um who is now a pretty well known model who said that because of the images that were portrayed before her, before she got into the industry, she felt like she was ugly and mm-hmm. she wasn't beautiful enough to be a model. Mm-hmm. So that's one of many women out here and men or whatever who they see this certain thing Before them, that's supposed to be the epitome of beauty or whatever. Maybe it could be epitome of success or whatever the case may be. And um, we are all aware of the term white privilege. And we know most people know what that means. Um, And if a person listening to this doesn't know what that means, please look it up. Find out what (laughs) white privilege is. Um, But as far as um, image is concerned. Do you feel that one of the things that needs to really be brought to light in mass is the image, the true image of what Jesus, who Jesus was? Do you feel like that actually would um, make a difference, that it matters to people? Because, and and one of the reasons why I say this, it's just, this has been something on my heart for years. But I also recently came across this lady, I don't remember her name right now, but she's a theologian and she's got all kinds of stuff that she talks about dealing with these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And she wrote an article about this. Mm-hmm. And she said, Jesus's color does matter. What he looked like does matter. And she broke it down as to why. And I really love the article and I reached out to her. Prayerfully, I'll be able to get her on here. But anyway, in your estimation, um, from what you've seen, from what you've experienced, and whatnot, would you say that image does matter?
1: Well, I think it. I, I think it matters in the sense that it that it that it breaks down the stereotype, the the dominant stereotype uh, of viewing Jesus as essentially a white person. Mm-hmm. That that matters. I don't think it matters so much specifically exactly what he looked like, yeah. or that that, and it wouldn't be. I don't think it would please God to take some sort of uh, Semitic representation of Jesus and elevate that above above all other sorts of ethnicities or whatever, mm. because that would just be replacing one error kind of with another yeah. one, although it would be somewhat better historically founded. Um, <laughs> but but the, the problem is anytime, anytime you're, you're elevating one thing above another, because when we go back to the image of God and man, the image of God in man is is not essentially physical yeah. image of God. Mm-hmm. It's it's the it's that stamp of personhood and humanity that God mm-hmm. has put on us, and we all share that equally. Yes. So that's why I say that that noting and uh, being aware of the fact that Jesus didn't certainly did not conform to the dominant stereotype that's helpful to to even that playing field. Mm -hmm. Trying to take another one and and elevate it above the others would would kind of go against the grain of the image of God because, again, it would be giving preference of one thing over another. But, um, yeah. So,
0: yeah, I definitely, excuse me, I definitely wasn't thinking to elevate anything above something else. I'm thinking more of educate. And I feel like, The reason why this is important is because um, really and what it would actually kind of open up the, I believe, a dialogue on is, okay, so we know this is not what Jesus looked like. There are people out here who, again, going back to what I was saying before about saying this is a white man's religion, who have no idea that an Ethiopian was the first person to take. The gospel mm-hmm. to Africa. Mm-hmm. Like, they have no idea about that. Yeah. They think that it was some white people who were <laughs> trying to enslave somebody that came over to tell them. And I'm like, and that's a battle that I have when I have those kind of conversations. Yeah. I'm like, man, you don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. But the problem is, is that because of the history of, I guess, where things have come, um, how things happen in America. Um, comes in, that's what causes people to, who are Americans, to have a certain viewpoint um, and specifically those that are African American descent. Um, so,
1: yeah, you know, and I don't even have any problem with, like, black depictions of Jesus, though they're not any more accurate than yeah. the white depictions, yeah. as a correct, again, as a corrective, yeah. to show that, yes, you can have this identification and that God identifies with everybody, mm-hmm. In that in that context, although you know you you can't make a case for it being historically accurate, yeah, yeah. but but I mean as a corrective to what we have, you know I, I think it can be helpful on that level. Yeah. If 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 all the depictions all of a sudden became black instead of white, I don't think that would be a positive development. Yeah. But as a corrective to what we're, we've been dealing with for hundreds of years, it works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, so it's you, the
1: same kind of thing with with, with the. People say Black Lives Matter, and then the immediate rejoinder is, "Well, all, all lives, lives matter." matter yeah. Well, of course they do, but but it, but those other lives aren't being the value of those other lives isn't being questioned. Yeah. that's why you have that's why you have to emphasize yeah, one, exactly. and it's the same kind of thing. It's a corrective to what's already going on, and
0: and it's also the reason why there's a HBCU and a Black entertainment television and all that, you know.
1: In a black history, you don't even need exactly. A lot of white
0: people wonder, "Well, why do you have to have a black history?" By (laughs) the (laughs) way, like the question I want to ask them exactly, and then I want to ask them, "What do you know about black history?" Yeah, you don't know anything, so why wouldn't you want to have this? You know, and the thing is, is like, and I remember growing up, and you probably had it even worse than me. I don't know. I don't know how the books might have changed or whatever, but when we came into history. It was always when we got to America. Like, if I remember taking world history, but then I remember taking American history. And American history is like, I guess they start out with Columbus came here or something okay. like that. And I don't know if you're aware of this book, but there's a book called They Came Before Columbus. You ever heard of that? You ever read it? Yeah. Yeah. So well, I have
1: not read it. You haven't but read I am it. aware of it. Of the okay. Argument of, yes.
0: okay. So, anyway, the point is, is that in american history it basically starts out columbus came here he discovered america after that then all of a sudden the pilgrims came here and then you know and then it goes into how they brought slaves over from the um on the transatlantic um slave uh trade and all that and then when they came here there was plantations and this that and a third but then it'll be like they'll start concentrating a lot on the presidents and these different things that were happening. events, Yeah, wars and stuff like that. They're completely just not even talking about slavery. Then they might start mentioning it at some point when they say, and then when it comes to slavery, they had the cotton gin and then they had this and then they had that. And then in 1865, they were free. Oh yeah? After 400 years, you didn't even talk about Four hundred years of what was going on in America, but now all of a sudden they're free. Wait a minute, what happened before they were free then? Yeah. And there is no any kind of there is no concentration on what happened. And part of it makes me feel like, and this is a person I'm multiracial, by the way. Yeah. I know you didn't know that, but I'm multiracial: Native American, African, and European. Yeah. And so I have a unique kind of perspective on things. Two parts of me were oppressed, you know what I'm saying, and the other one wasn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about it is, when I look at how they skipped over all that stuff, it makes me think, okay, is there like guilt that caused you to skip over it? Because you don't want anybody to know how horrific this was? Or is it because you want it to be marginalized and forgotten? <laughs> and you don't want anybody to really know what happened. Those are the only two things that can be. That's the only two. Because you don't forget 400 years of what was going on, but you can talk about everything else that was happening in those 400 years. That's one of the biggest problems that I've seen in our school system. This is part of what I believe continues to propagate certain racial stuff that's going on in America because here's the problem let's just say and this is a, a a a good way of looking at it if 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 everybody had um and I, I can't remember the exact what happened in the study but there was a study where they got all these kids together and they had boys and they had girls and they said they put pink and blue in the room or something like that and they said all the boys went to the blue all the girls went to the pink and it was just natural. Now, let's just say you put all these kids together with no influence as to, and they're all different colors and everything. They don't have anybody saying anything to them about who they should be talking to or whatever.
1: Yeah, If there's no previous acculturation. Yeah, exactly.
0: And look what happens in that situation. I guarantee you, there is not going to be this thing about, well, look at what you look like. I don't look like that. Look, my color is better, or, you know, or whatever the case may yeah. be because they're all in an equal type of situation, right? Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because in a controlled environment where there is no outside type of, um, you know, influence, there's certain things that just won't happen. Now, let's just put that in the context of history. If I don't tell these kids in this room about certain history, they're only going to know what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. They will think whatever they're experiencing is all there's ever been, and they will just grow up with that. The danger with that is, as people have said, I've heard it many times, when you don't know history, you have the danger of repeating it. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the negative parts of it. Now, I've heard recently that um our president apparently wants to uh segregate schools again i haven't heard it directly on the news i heard it through other people they say he wants to segregate schools i don't know if you're aware of this or not
1: well the, there there was there was some survey there was some surveying done of uh uh potential um judicial appointments People that he might might um, put in judicial appointments, and some, what I read about it was this, that there were a, a number of those people who didn't like openly support Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which is the thing that desegregated mm-hmm. and led to the desegregation of the schools. Um, I don't know the circumstance. I don't know the circumstance of that surveying. Uh, sometimes judges are very reticent to pronounce themselves about any court cases, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if that means that they're actually against it or the. But I think that's where that that I think that's where that talk came from. Okay, and I I, I don't know enough about it yet to really know what that means. Mm-hmm. But I mean the general direction of a return to
2: um, states' rights and
1: even the whole idea of making america great again uh harkens back to a time when white people had more cultural hegemony and had more control and it harkens back to a time when african americans had less freedom and less uh less say in what mm-hmm. went on so obviously there's a certain segment of the white population for whom that's an attractive notion it's not attractive across the board yeah <laughs> um and and to, to emphasize that, that kind of hearkening back to a previous era without an appreciation for how, uh, how damaging that is and how hurtful it is to people who went through terrible experiences back then, um, obviously is, is a form of uh, racial and cultural insensitivity at very best, mm-hmm. and possibly an overt attempt. To, to turn that clock back. Yeah. Um so that's obviously troubling. Yeah. But so the, the whole hi- history thing and I think you hit on it in part you're talking about two reasons why people don't want to go back to that mm-hmm. and you know a lot of white people would not don't want to have to revisit eras where there's not much to be proud of in terms of their racial attitudes. Mm-hmm. They, they want to they want to focus on how far we've come and and not have to go back and and really look at what happened back there they don't want to have to look at at the sexual abuse mm-hmm. that was rampant in slaves I mean that the average african American person has twelve point seven percent of European ancestry, mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of one great grandparent mm-hmm. well that's not an accident, yeah you know uh and um you know, they, people don't want to go back and, and even after the slavery time, they don't want to go back and think about stuff that happened in Jim Crow. They don't want to think about mm-hmm. lynching. You know, I, in, in the research for my book, I spent a whole month
2: I mean like all day, every day studying nothing but lynching. Hmm. And I, in, in,
1: in,
0: before you get into that, I apologize. Yeah. Can you tell them? Is it okay for you to tell the name of your book first? Yeah, yeah.
1: The yeah. book, the book is coming out soon, called "White as Sin: A New Paradigm for Racial Healing."
0: Okay, now you can talk about yeah. the launching.
1: And so, and I, I talk about it like in the first chapter of the book how this sort of led to, I, uh, uh, not, not not a breakdown, uh, like a permanent thing, but I just uh, to emotional overload. Mm -hmm. Uh, just because there was so much stuff that I had really never been exposed to and a little bit, and then you move on. That's one thing. (laughs) But then when that's all you think about for a whole month, I've never been the same. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't look at that sort of horror Mm -hmm. and and walk away and be the same person. I mean, you know, I, I, I can only imagine coming out of, if that were my personal history and i was bringing all this with me although i'm i'm pretty sure that very few people of any color have spent that much time in a concentrated form looking at this um and you know they've opened this museum now in mississippi about uh, to honor the the victims of lynching and they and to talk oh, about wow. history of lynching and i want to go there hmm. but i'm i'm a little bit concerned. <laughs> that I would be emotionally overwhelmed yeah. to go back there because it just brings, it just brings back the whole emotion of, of, of going through that. But yeah. I, I was just committed to the fact, the fact that I wanted to see how my, how my spirit would feel if, if I allowed it to steep in the actual history of what happened. But that's, that's a, that's a road. And I did that because I, I, for my own personal integrity, but I also did it to be an interpreter to other people who weren't going to spend that kind of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people don't want to go back, you know that, um, that. I think there may be another reason, though, why there's so little history. Okay. And one, um, and that is because there was so little consideration given to the importance of people of color over time. That well, they weren't given any, any social pr- protagonism. They weren't allowed to make any decisions that there were very few written records kept of whatever their accomplishments were. So if you want to go back and, and establish the history, there's not nearly as much to work with there as there is for the white legacy. But that's symptomatic of the fact that mm-hmm. that, that people were disrespected for, mm-hmm. for hundreds of years, and there's not even a consideration. Okay, maybe they didn't, you know, they weren't inventing in, in the light bulb every Every decade throughout this history, but to skip over that time without giving due consideration to the importance of the lives that were lived, the relationships that were had, and the you know everybody's accomplishments are relative to their circumstances. Exactly. So yeah, if you know if if you grow up if if you grow up in all of these elite circumstances, you're you're starting from a certain place where you might make accomplishments that are going to go into the newspaper or whatever. But that doesn't mean that that people who are starting in humbler circumstances don't don't have very significant accomplishments in their own lives. And we have to study those, even though it might take a little more effort, and appreciate them and honor them if we're going to honor the people. So
0: So, I'm glad you brought that up. And um, it made me think, too, because what it made me think about is if people, like, okay, and I'm a related to this movie that I watched recently. I, I watched the movie um, Unplanned and um, about abortion. And watching that movie, okay, before I went in there, I had an idea of what, what I would, I guess, experience and or see or whatnot. However, having an idea of it versus actually seeing it It's two different things. When I saw it, when I saw what was going on, I cried. I cried to the point where if it wasn't other people in there, it would have been so much worse. I know that for a fact. I would have been just done. I, I don't even know. Yeah, I probably would have been like balled up somewhere and just crying very deeply based on what I saw. I feel first of all, when people are not aware of something, they can distance themselves from it easily. Mm-hmm. With them distancing distancing themselves, they're not in they're not emotionally um, oh man, there's a word I'm looking for. Um engaged engaged but there's another word I was trying to think of Um, it's like, they're not, they don't feel, they don't have the sensitivity and the feeling of it. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, I feel like (laughs) it's no different than Mm -hmm. if you heard about a murder versus one of your parents got murdered. Mm -hmm. That's two different things. Now you feel it. It hit home. That one, that's like down the street. You don't know them.
2: You heard it on the news. You
0: heard it on the news. You see what I'm saying? Two different things. It didn't impact you. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: What I feel is part of the thing that will, at least in America, start to bring. And I, you know, unfortunately, we have I have to say it the way that I'm about to say it, because. It's kind of like if I'm in my family, I know what my family's done. I know what we do for fun. I know all these things about my family. The only way you would know about my family is if you come and join up mm-hmm. with us when we have a cookout, when we have dinner, when we do this, that, and <coughs> a when we get together. That's how you'll learn about my family. But if you don't experience that, all you'll be hearing is some stories. Yeah, we went there and then, and this is what happened, you know, but it's nothing that's really going to impact you because you haven't experienced it personally. What I feel that needs to happen with many caucasians in america they have to either be forced and i when i say this i mean in the sense of if you're going to school they have to tell you the history because you're never going to go study it anyway if you don't get it told to you you have to learn it in school you know what i'm saying like it should be made like this is something you need to know why Why about them and maybe not other people? Because other people were not impacted the way this group of people were in this country. Okay? We got Native Americans and then we have African Americans. Both of those groups of people had terrible things happen to them. Both of their histories marginalized in the books. Bottom line. All I ever heard was Trail of Tears which that's driving all the Native Americans to Oklahoma. I heard about them coming here and supposedly having a Thanksgiving meal with the Native Americans, and that's where Thanksgiving started. You know, stuff like that. But I didn't hear anything else other than the Native Americans were giving these people problems. Oh, you mean the people coming to take their land? You know, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So even in that, it wasn't like... um, They were given any kind of real recognition of what happened to them, why they are in the condition that they're in. Even to this day, on reservations where supposedly they have tax-free stuff or whatever, but still living in poverty. How in the world are you in poverty? And this is the land that you were in before other people came. That doesn't make any sense to me. Something is in place that's causing that. So anyway, I feel like um, people who uh, specifically who are Caucasian in America, they have to either force themselves to learn something like what you did with the lynching. I believe that if anybody with a half a heart was able to like force themselves to learn something about the atrocities that happened, it would cause them... To weep, most likely to have a deep introspective, uh, situation where they look at themselves. They look at what happened. They start to analyze things more. They start to really understand how deep this thing goes. So they did get an appreciation for why there's a Black History Month, mm-hmm. why there's now the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. You know, these are huge things that. Uh, Finally, after 150 years, finally, something has been put in place that will help to bring the history to the forefront. And to me, is no different than bringing to the forefront what happened with the Holocaust, what happened, you know, in other places. I feel like Most people know we are living in what are called the last days but most people do not know that the last days have been here since the time when the first apostles were alive. Jesus said that in the last days false prophets would arise and show great signs and wonders to the point that if possible they shall deceive the very elect. This tells me that we must be on guard and know what we are up against. If Jesus made this a priority to speak on that subject, it must be very important for us to know what our enemy is up to. And that is why I wrote my book. My name is Norman Brown and I am the author of Among the Wolves. The reason I wrote this book is because I was one of those people who was very close to a false prophet and I witnessed firsthand the dealings of a false prophet for seven years of my life. After seven years of going through this stage of my walk with Christ, the Lord finally revealed to me what it was that was happening right under my nose. And it was on that day that I started down a road of recovery from hurt, betrayal, bitterness, anger at God, and unforgiveness toward the man whom I once called my spiritual father. Many people are dealing with the same church hurt that I went through, And it is tearing lives apart because many have discovered that their walk was wrapped up in a man and not in God and now they are going through a process of healing from that pain they endured from the abuse of their trust their heart to serve and desire to expand the reach of God's kingdom if you have experienced this type of hurt if you have witnessed deception in the church on TV on YouTube on podcast or on radio and see how it affects people then this is a book that you should read to get your free copy of my book simply subscribe to the new NUMA Godcast email list by emailing new.numa.podcast at gmail.com email us today for your free copy god bless